Welcome to Obvious Startup Advice. My name is Eric Marcoulier, and I'm a human landmine detector. I keep founders from blowing up their early stage companies by pointing out the shit that has killed so many startups before them. It's less about do this and do that and more about, oh God, oh God, please don't do that. I've done it four times and it never, ever works. Here's why. Each week, I publish a blog post at obviousstartupadvice.com to provide context for the different aphorisms I use over and over again with early stage founders. Then I get together with a couple of founder and investor friends to hear about their own experiences with that topic. This week, my guests are Natty Zola from Matchstick Ventures and David Mandel from Massive VC. Natty co-founded the travel blogging tool Everlater, then Ryan Product at MapQuest. He was managing director of Techstars Boulder for six years and most recently launched Matchstick Ventures, an early stage VC fund. David was a managing director at Deloitte, co-founded One Riot and then Pivot Desk, and is now running multiple investment firms, both Massive VC and the Fund Rockies. This week's podcast is brought to you by the letter W and the number four. Let's get to the conversation now, shall we? This week's obvious startup advice blog post was called Unexpected and Inevitable. The main thrust is that in order to truly capture an investor's attention, your core thesis needs to be something that 100 people hadn't already thought of, that's the unexpected part, yet feel completely predestined the moment the pitch is made. That's the inevitable part. So guys, you're both running funds these days. First of all, would you agree? Do these two concepts seem important for getting your attention? I think they're pretty critical attention-getting points. I mean, there's obviously a lot more involved in making a decision on the investment side, but the first job of any pitch, whether you're selling to a customer or selling to an investor or selling to anyone, is to connect with them emotionally. And you have to do that by shocking them into thinking something different than they're used to thinking, and then bring them to a place where they believe that the world can be better as a result or different in a different way. So the unexpected and inevitable is a good way to kind of set that thought process up, I think. You know, I don't want to bring up bad memories and hopefully there's been enough But time, you're going to. But I'm going to. Pivot Desk, man. That, to me, was a perfect example where the pitch, as I remember, was basically every startup gets fucked when they're leasing space because you're growing. And so early on, you're too small for the space. And then you're crammed into the space. And the moment you said that, it was like, oh, wow, you're right. This is inherently broken. And then you said, well, let's just create a marketplace where we can sublease that space. And it was just like, holy shit, this is the way it's going to be. How did that come to you? You know, what's funny about that question is the the concept that I needed. So when I first started Pivot Desk, and I'll tell you how it came, I mean, it came to me because every entrepreneur that started a company faced the same bullshit, right? So real estate is static and businesses are dynamic. And we're constantly trying to fit a dynamic being into a static infrastructure. But we didn't think there was any different choices out there because this is just how it worked, right? We were conditioned to think this is how it worked. And it was clearly not a beneficial way for the businesses, right? This was the reason it works that way is because landowners needed to assure certain long-term contracts with their finance banks to get enough financing to back the purchase of a property. So the customer or the business was subject to those rules that were not actually ever designed for them. So from being a multiple-time founder, I'm like, this is stupid. This should work differently. And the challenge from my perspective was I had, I don't know shit about real estate, right? Like I had no background in real estate whatsoever. I had to figure out 
how can I make this work? And I initially started talking to real estate people saying, hey, this is how I think it should work. It should be more flexible. It should be a five or 10 year commitments for, for sharing space that you shouldn't have to get attorneys involved. And they're like, well, that's how it works. So you can't do that. So let me, so let me jump in real fast. The way that I described it was long-winded and was sort of ham-fisted. And then you reminded me of what you said, right? Which is that, it, that, that real estate is static and startups are dynamic. Businesses are dynamic. Absolutely. Startups, but businesses in general are dynamic. For sure. So was that something that just, again, that, that sort of the moment you thought of this, it was like, oh, and here's the, here's the magic way of saying it. Or did, was that something that you workshopped over time? I knew that was the case emotionally. It took me a long time to workshop the right words, the right phrases, and the right way to say it. And that's, you know, that's something that I think when you're, <clears throat> when you're pitching your business or creating a unique value pop from a startup perspective, it takes a lot of work to get the messaging and positioning and the phrasing right. And it takes a lot of tweaking and a lot of iteration because usually when you're starting a company, like you feel something inherently, like you just want to fix it or something has to be the way it is, isn't right. And you want to fix that. But being able to communicate that effectively to a potential investor or a customer or an audience or any other stakeholder is really difficult because they don't live in your shorts with you. And so it actually takes a shitload of work to get the right phrasing down, especially, you know, you're talking about the unexpected and inevitable being able to phrase it in a way that when you're talking to a potential investor or customer, they like they say, oh, wow, that's right. I never thought about it that way, but that makes total sense, right? And it's you need to get someone to that point emotionally before they're even willing to listen to you about the logic and data behind the initiative. So yeah, it was. I knew that feeling from the start, but it actually took a lot of time wordsmithing and tweaking and iteration to get it to that point. Natty, you look like you're about to fall asleep over there. Let me bring you into this because I've made love to, to David long enough here. Now it's your turn, right? He went through through Techstars before your first year, but that concept of real estate being static and businesses being dynamic, would that have caught your attention? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think what stands out there is that's an informed point of view on the market it's easy to relate to and it makes you have that, uh huh, ah, uh, yeah, I think you're right. Like, I never thought about it that way. And here you have a dynamic in a market that is inefficient. And that's where there's great opportunity. And that positioning is super strong because it's unarguable and it feels big, right? Like, you're talking about systems here that, that scale. And so, you know, it's easy for an investor to look at that and think, you know, you're right. That's, a, that's sort of a unique lens on the world that I hadn't thought of before. So that's the unexpected part. And the inevitability is like, it just is, is a realization. Well, obviously this is the way, like, why have we had a, why have we forced a round peg into a square hole for so long? So, I, I mean, I think that that's a perfect example of something unexpected and inevitable, but then after the fact feels like destined, um, which I think is the, is the, you know, powerful part about this is you, you need to have something that's unexpected and inevitable and then, and then actually, you know, extrapolate that into a plan that you can go execute on. And uh, the, there's a difference between something sounding like inevitable and, oh yeah, this is how the future could be and a realistic plan of also getting there. And for I remember sure. uh, we're, you know, David and I have been friends for a long time. And I remember he also, you know, had a really great plan of how to get there. Um, 
which I think, you know, if you check the unexpected and the inevitable box, then there's the reality check of, okay, like, but how do we actually get there? Right. That's, that's, that's the key, right? The unexpected and inevitable will get you the conversation started, but then you got to back it up with actual insight into how to execute and how to get there, which is kind of, you know, that's the next step. That is the next step. And that will be a future blog post. (laughs) When I think of tech stars, Natty, you, uh, over the course of six years, probably got inbound interest from 6,000 or more companies, and you ultimately had to choose just 60, maybe 61. I think there was one year where you had a lot of... Actually, 64. Uh, I did. I stretched a few years. There we go. 64. I'm always a rule breaker. Always a rule breaker. (laughs) So of those 64, right, what do you think the percentage was that truly had something where you were like, huh? Like, hadn't thought about it that way before versus how many of them had just like great traction? Yeah. It's a tough question. I could actually go back. I I would like to go back and look at that. I I think that if you, if you phrase the question a different way, which is if I looked at my, the companies that have outperformed, what were most of them companies that fit into this sort of unexpected bucket, but maybe didn't have traction versus the companies where you know, yeah, okay, this is kind of an obvious thing and there's some traction here and let's go grow this. I think that a a significantly higher portion of them fall into that unexpected bucket. Um, A recent example is a company in Denver called Suna. And I remember this, I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty dense uh, because I did, it took me a long time to get this company, but this is the perfect example for me of something unexpected and inevitable basically what they're doing is they're creating the Kinkos of the future where we don't care about printed paper products anymore. Every brand, every product company needs rapid, fast turnaround, high quality digital video and photo. And she and Liz, the founder of Suna, created this concept of we're going to build sort of the Kinkos of the future where you go in and within 24 hours, you get all the photos or video that you need for an upcoming blog post, for your Amazon site, for whatever it is. And to be frank, like I did not get it for a long time. And, um, I think luckily, uh, I got some good advice from someone to bet on Liz and through going through the Techstars program, this turned into being such an unexpectedly delightfully big business that customers absolutely love and is so inevitably the future of content creation. And it's, it's just a perfect example and a reminder for me as an investor to have that curiosity lens, because. If you, the things that are unexpected and then inevitable and realize you're, they're inevitable are the outliers, but it takes a very curious, open mind to be able to, to hear that. Cause usually these things look different. They look scary. They sound odd. You're like, what are you talking about for maybe half the conversation? But if you really are, are curious about it, you get to these cool insights and find these unexpected and inevitable things, but it, it's hard. Okay, so I love this because just from a pattern matching perspective, the, I forget the guy's name uh, that did Momofuku, the restaurateur. I, I heard him a year or two ago say like the perfect amount of salt is when you can't tell if it's too salty or not salty enough. And I, I heard a while ago also from uh, an investor, I don't remember who, said that the best startups were the one where you really don't know whether or not you should invest right? There are reasons to invest and there are reasons not to invest. And it's just that, oh, fuck, I've got to do it. Do you think that the unexpected comes into play there? Yeah. I mean, another data point that I've, I've tracked is we select companies for tech stars, one through, we make 10 selections-ish per class. 
And usually the first three are kind of easy because these are these these end up being these sort of obvious and inevitable companies. And selections seven through ten end up being the unexpected and inevitable ones. And I think that the selections ten through seven through ten, which are the ones that have usually take the extra two or three weeks to really hand ring around, which is which company should we select, end up outperforming the obvious ones that were the first three selections. And I think the reason why is if you if you create a startup that is expected, I guess it, you know the inevitable piece. Hopefully, it always feels inevitable, but the expected side of things it usually gets really crowded and competitive. And that's not the way to build a big business. Like you don't want to create something that's obvious because usually the barriers to entry are lower. A bunch of people have already tried it and found the the problems of why it won't work. And you just haven't experienced them yet. And you're, you're going to just have a harder time convincing the market that your product is the best one if there is competition out there. So I don't know. Uh, I, I just really resonate with this framing and I, my experience with Techstars has really proven that out. David, what do we need to do to get Natty to actually go and do this deep dive? I desperately want to see how those 64 companies performed, the unexpected versus the expected or the obvious ones. I, I just say, I think you just need to ask him. Uh, <laughs> Natty, will you please do that? Awesome. That's great. I'll tell you one of the one of the biggest challenges to the unexpected um, in the startup space that I always find is simply the the challenge of being able to tell your story in a way that you can communicate that vision because it's the vision that's unexpected, right? Like, and the one of the the biggest barriers that I talk about when you're doing a startup is the challenge to realize that no one actually gives a shit what you do. They only care about how you're going to affect them, right? And 99.9% of the startups you talk to, you say, hey, what are you doing? They'll tell you exactly what they do. It's like, oh, we're an AI-powered local platform that initiates data across several different data points to facilitate. I'm like, I don't fucking care. Dude, you're making me hot right now. Right. But but that's not unexpected because they use all the same buzzwords as everybody else, right? And they said, like, that doesn't get me interested. Right. That's like, oh, fuck. now I actually got to go do the work to understand what you're actually talking about and understand why it matters. The, the good companies and the good founders are the people that realize if you prove that unexpected vision first and then back it up with, with that data, like that's how you get on the radar. Right. So don't tell them what you do. Tell them why you matter. Right. So the world shouldn't work like this. It should work this way, because if it works like this, you're going to be able to do this, this, this and this. Let me tell you how we're doing that. So there's a, a Medium post that's something like the best sales deck I've ever seen. And it talks about essentially telling the future, right? It's a sense yeah, of, absolutely. I've seen the future. There's this massive change going on. Winners are going to do X. Losers are going to do Y. We're telling you how to be a winner. It seems like there's a lot of correlation with that and the unexpected framing. Yeah. I mean, the way I refer to it is it's an early stage, at least. It's all about religion. Right. And it's not about data. It's about religion. And you have to be able to get up and stand up on a table and tell a story about a better world where people are going to follow you. And once they listen to your story about the better world and they see it, they, they, they realize that, oh, my God, that is inevitable. I want to get on board. Right. And if you can't tell that story and it's literally like religion, then you're you're not going to be able to communicate that that unique value proper, that differentiation or the unexpected part. Of your business to get them to believe in the inevitable. Let me change text. One of the things that I often coach founders on is you generally want the investor nodding their head, 
almost the entire pitch, right? You want them just, yep, yep, that makes sense. Yep, like those numbers make sense. I love that. I love that. But every once in a while, if you want to be unexpected, you have to have them not nodding. And it's dangerous, right? The reason that we want the investor to nod their head is because if they're not nodding, then they're, worst case, internally arguing with you and they fucking tuned you out because they're busy refuting in their own head the numbers or the information that you're providing. So how do you, as investors, counsel founders now to present you with unexpected information in a way that you don't start dismissing it outright and you never say shit to them? Well, I think this is one of the things we work a lot on in Techstars. We, we dedicate almost half the program to storytelling. So I think the first thing that it comes down to is practicing. So it's really important to meet with a coach, find a, a friendly investor, go to a pitch event or something and practice and start to see, you know, test out different story arcs around how you talk about your company. Like, I don't think you can just show up there and, you know, wing it. Um, I mean, m- maybe you can get away with that, but you certainly don't want to. Um, and so I think what you're trying to practice there is like, what's the hook, what's the thing that gets someone to lean in, in the first minute and be really curious and engaged with you around the conversation. Um, and that's, and that takes some testing. So I think the short answer on this is it's, it's usually takes work to find the right story arc for it. Natty, you were on a Boulder pitch review recently and a company that I won't name, I was working with last minute and they were going to do just that. Three days before they were scheduled to pitch, I checked in with them and they're like, hey, we've got a basic story. Like, I, I think we're good. And it was just like, motherfuckers. Oh God. Natty spent so six years, yeah. so six years helping companies figure out how to tell their story. And immediately it was like, okay, I'm talking to you in four hours tonight, have a fucking outline. <laughs> and I'm talking to you tomorrow to morning and tomorrow <laughs> afternoon. And it sounds like they did all right. David, as you said, it it hurts to think of somebody showing up and just winging it. It, it, I mean, look, you're investing so much of your life and your, your energy and your emotion and your family's energy and emotion. And like, there's so much involved in starting a company, right? Like, you know, we could spend hours and hours going down this rabbit hole, but there's so much invested. Why would you take for granted one of the most important fucking parts of getting that business up and running, right? Like the story is so critical and it's pain, like, obviously it's important with investors, but this is so much bigger than investors, right? Like how are you going to get people to work for you when you don't have the money to pay them? They work for you because they believe because you're telling the right story, right? How are you going to get early customers to use your product when it sucks? They're going to use it because they believe, Right. Not because they're being told to. And like, if you pass up that opportunity to to craft a story that is about the unexpected and the beautiful and the amazing and the inevitable and the better world and the religion, you are you're losing. 80 percent of the fight from the get go. Right. And like, there's just so much involved there. So it like I get so angry because 95, 98, even maybe even a higher percent of startups totally fucking suck telling their story so it's so easy to differentiate. I'm, I'm glad that you added that last part for i thought with that pregnant pause was just 80 to 90 percent of startups suck and well i mean that's probably close to that it's a little bit more kind yeah but the, but the opportunity there is it's so easy to differentiate by doing it right because you're in such a small percentage of the population by doing it right that you're immediately differentiating 
right? So there's just, there's so much involved in being able to, to like create that unexpected and inevitable story in a clear, concise, repeatable, consistent way that doesn't sound repeatable and consistent, which is kind of the challenge, right? I just want to underline what David said there. I mean, I think if you think being a CEO of a startup is, you know, doing, leading your team and, you know, deciding on product strategy and all these sort of things, you know what your job really is, is chief storyteller. Like you are spending, you need to sign up for 50 plus percent of your time is storytelling, internal employees, customers, like everything David said. And if that doesn't, if you're not excited about working on that, if you don't want to practice it and practice it and practice it and get feedback on it and fail and then get feedback and fail and get feedback, it's going to be hard to lead a company. Yep. And it's tiring, but it's, it's, it's the, it's probably the most important thing. Like when you, there's so many people who, who read TechCrunch and they see these companies that raised money, you know, great big rounds before they even have a product or whatever. Largely that's because they be, they are great storytellers. Yes. They probably have a pedigree. And, and that's, you know, a whole issue on its own, right? Which we can talk about. But what they also did was they they knew how to tell a story, probably because they had a prior startup that they figured out how to tell a story and they know how to paint a picture of a new, unexpected, inevitable future that the investor just sees. Um, I, I recently met a company that they haven't written a line of code, but they present they spent so much time presenting such a beautiful vision for the future I'm ready to fund it without a single line of code written because they it, it just feels so so inevitable to them. One other thing to come back to is this is not a new concept. Um, I used to work for Jim Collins, and in Good to Great, one of the one of the most powerful aspects of the best leaders was this concept of an envisioned future. To them, the future was so clear, and it was not a not a function of will we maybe get there or what maybe this fuzzy you know if we're successful what it's going to look like. Like they literally are living 10 years in the future. The best CEOs, the best entrepreneurs are living 10 years in the future. And they and, and, and their job is to communicate and take you to that future state in a way that's so immersive that you realize like you're there too. And then you just need to fund the, the, the development to reach that future. And so this is, you know, this is not a new concept, um, but it is one of the most powerful ones. 100%. I think the most used aphorism in my toolkit is something that I'm pretty sure I got from from David Cohen, and uh, I'm pretty sure that he got it from somewhere else. But it's that classic. I think they have pills for that. The uh, it's true. It, it itches, but uh, in a good way. Um, it's that the CEO has three responsibilities, right? It's communicate the vision, hire great people, and don't run out of money. And and what I always what I always add to that is it's very specifically in that order. Because how do you hire great people? By communicating the vision. How do you not run out of money, whether that's selling your product or raising capital? Communicating the vision. And so chief storyteller, 100%, chief communicator. One of the most common phrases that I always hear from very early product-oriented founders is, how do I find a tech co-founder? And the kind of snarky but really honest answer is, Look, if you can't fucking figure out how to find a co-founder, you don't deserve to run a company. You haven't earned that right. Is it fair to say that maybe this whole unexpected and inevitable thing is just another stage gate where the CEO is proving that they are, in fact, the storyteller or the communicator necessary to lead a a high-growth company? 
I think 100%. And I'll, and I'll go back to your previous statement, like when, when a CEO says, how do I find a co-founder? I actually flip it around. I said, if they're not finding you, you suck at your story. <laughs> right. And, and like, but that's the point. Like, if you are good at telling your story and you can create the vision and you create this unexpected, inevitable world, the co founders will find you. And you should be filtering for the ones that want to get on board. Right. If you are out trying to sell to find a co founder, you're doing it wrong. So you, you'll, you'll love this. I had a, a client call today. The team just raised $5 million, not a line of code, visionary team in the video game space, which I have a soft spot in my heart for. And they raised that money based on the vision of this new type of game that they want to launch. And now they're in the hiring process. And for certain roles, it was easy, right? Just their extended network, found uh, found some programmers. But they're really looking for a special designer, right? And somebody that isn't necessarily just another white dude in the group. And so they've been reaching out to the edges of their network and saying, can you put this job posting out to, to your networks? And the CEO today was like, yeah, I just, I haven't gotten any responses yet. And I fucking knew what the problem was, right? I was like, so how much of the vision did you share? And he's like, ah, you know, I, I didn't want to give too much away. And of course, you know, we, we could have a whole nother conversation about being promiscuous as hell with your idea, because if somebody can take your idea and, and, and beat you to the market, like you didn't deserve to start that company anyway. But it was like, all right, if you raised all this capital with your vision, how could you then attempt to hire people without communicating the vision? And the CEO was just like, oh, crap, it's you know, duh. OK, and off to the races like he'll fix that tomorrow. I think sometimes we forget, like, what put yourself in the other person's shoes. Like, you wouldn't go join a startup that didn't have an, uh, you know, unexpected and inevitable story, right? You're not going to go join a company that didn't have a dynamic leader who is good at communicating what they're doing. And by good at communicating, by the way, we're not talking about, you know, a polished speaker. We're just talking about using the right, most interesting words and speaking them with passion and knowledge, regardless of your communication style around what you're doing. You're not going to, you know, you wouldn't go join a company. Like, would you join your own startup, you know, the way that you pitched it? Would you fund your own startup the way that you pitched it in that meeting? Like, I think if people right. took that step back, a lot of times they would realize, maybe I wouldn't. I think what's really important to call out there is that you know, startups pay for shit. Your stock options typically aren't worth anything. Yep. So you better have a noble vision of the future to offer people that you're trying to get to join and to, to invest. Yeah. And I, I, I'm completely aligned with what Maddie said with one small tweak. Like you need to say it. And, and you know, so he used the word, he used the word passion. And I hear that word a lot. I, I, I optimize towards obsession, right? Cause like we, we know how hard this, like everyone on this call knows how hard, how hard this shit is. Right. And it's not about passion. It's about obsession. And it's about, for all those reasons, when an investor if you're trying to convince an investor to put money in your company, they know how hard this is too, right? And they want to invest in someone that if they're sitting across the table from you and the place you need to get is across town and every door between here and there is locked, you're going to smash through every fucking door between here and there to get there, right? And that's what they want to know. And when you're trying to find a co-founder, the co-founder is going to jump on board with someone that they, when they talk to that person, they're like, push it. This person's going to get, get us there. No question, right? Like it's about obsession. It's not really about passion. It's not like, yeah, this is going to be cool. It's like, no, this is going to happen. 
because this has to happen because this is the right way to be. And we're going to take everybody there and everyone is going to go with us. And they're all going to realize that, holy shit, they're right. This is the right way to be. This gets into the inevitable side of the equation that Eric put out there, which is if it doesn't feel inevitable to you and there isn't that yeah. you know underlying obsession around creating this thing that, I mean, this should feel so obvious to you. Like you might, you know, I think one of the problems is, is when something feels so inevitable to you, you, lo- you lose patience with the people that you talk to with about it because not everyone is living in your future yet. And this is a dangerous place for a CEO or a, or a team to, to get to, which is you get, you, get, you get impatient with people not living in your future. And you can't let that overtake you. you. You are the unique team and unique people that see this vision. It's not, <clears throat> I actually put a tweet storm out about this. It is partly your vision, your responsibility to have the patience to communicate it and put the practice in to communicate it well. And it's the investor's responsibility to also have the patience and curiosity to try to learn it and get to your future state as well. So it's a two-sided relationship there. Most investors don't have that patience for what it's worth. And they sort of expect the entrepreneur to really nail the pitch. I don't take that viewpoint. Like my job, I think, is to really understand the future that you're going to see. I may not agree with it. It may not feel inevitable enough. It It may feel too obvious. But you as the entrepreneur cannot lose patience and get frustrated when people don't get there. That's when you need to look in the mirror and say, I'm probably not communicating this the right way. How can I make this thing that feels so inevitable to me feel inevitable to someone else? Let's, let's wrap up here with one last part, which is that's really hard, right? As you said, it requires patience on both sides to properly communicate. And as we discussed at the very beginning, David wasn't able to articulate that incredibly concise perspective on a pivot desk from day one. Other than just practice, 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 is there anything else that founders can do? Or is that just, again, part of the, 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 the heavy lifting that comes with starting a company? I, I think it is practice, practice, practice. And, and I think the, the challenge for a lot of um, founders that I see is they know what they're trying to do. <clears throat> so they think sh- they should be able to sit down and just write it out and it's good. And it's actually a really, really hard thing to do. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of iteration. And you know, the, the dichotomy in this story is the, is the real challenge is getting it to be simple. And unfortunately, simple is super complex. That's the Mark right? Twain quote, right? Yeah, so it's, it's, if I had more time, I would have written a shorter letter. That is exactly the deal, right? Because a lot of times in these stories, the challenge is more about what not to say than what, it, than what to say. Because as founders, we love all of our things. Right. Look at all these beautiful things I'm doing. And we want to talk about all the things and all the reasons they're all sparkly. And they're all the reasons that all the things. And most people don't have time or focus to care about 90% of those things. So the challenge is what are the things you talk about in what order, in what way to make, and all of those things are important. The order, the things, the the way you say it, like, so it's a lot of work. It's a lot of practice. It's a lot of iteration and it's about making the very complex, very simple. And that's super hard. I have a few little, I have a few little, I, I totally agree. A few little tactical things is this literally, you know, go talk to your grandmother and, and work on explaining it to them. And when they finally understand it and can say it back to you, you're getting closer, go talk to your customers or potential customers and have them tell you the value that you're providing to them and write down every word they say 
literally to the word because sometimes they use words that you don't use and and those are better words than probably the founders are using um always uh or another another way to is to start with why so really you know emphasize um you know people are paying you for your product for a superpower for something like david mentioned earlier so start with you know why why should they care about it not what you're doing and then lastly if you have any word that's longer than three syllables, take it out or any buzzword, take it out. And that can be later on in the conversation, but none of that is necessary when you're talking about the vision that you're trying to create. Yeah. If, if, if you take all the, if you take all the buzzwords out and all of a sudden you have nothing, you, you didn't have anything to begin with. Every, uh, every founder that I work with knows that the more excited that I get, the more F-bombs that I drop, right? <laughs> it's just like, we naturally do that. When we're engaging our intellectual side, we tend to use a more grandiose vocabulary. When we are emotionally involved, it's almost an unconscious desire to spit things out as quickly as possible. And that doesn't come by showcasing four and five syllable words. It's lots of shit fucks in my case. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being a part of this very first podcast. Natty, David, thank you guys so much. I will see you guys soon. Our pleasure, dude. Great to talk. This was unexpected and inevitable. And inevitable. I'm with you. 100%. <laughs> Thanks again to Natty, David, the letter W, and the number four. You guys were amazing. Especially you, number four. Next week on this podcast, it's all about why the CEO is responsible for the first 30 sales at any startup. If you want to get a jump on that idea, head over to obviousstartupadvice.com where you can read the article at this very moment. If you'd like to chat with me about your startup, my door is wide open and I'll make an hour of time for just about anyone without fail because founding companies is hard and everybody needs a friend. Just send me a note at eric at marcoulier.com or head over to my coaching site at www.marcoulier.com. That's easy to spell, right? Music was composed and performed by Royce Marcoulier. If you need music for your own podcast, send me a note and I'll put you in touch with that dude. He's fucking rad. Talk to you next week. Stay safe and be well.